According to CoinMarketCap.com, there are currently more than 19,000 cryptocurrencies that can be bought and sold either through centralized or decentralized exchanges. However, there's only one Bitcoin. But this idea often gets lost among the newly created DAO and DeFi projects and the literal open sea of NFTs, where seemingly every brand is about to drop their own NFT project. The more I dive into the world of blockchain, the more I feel people have gotten bored with Bitcoin, likely due to its simplicity. And so they're onto the next project of promise, searching for a mix of economic and social upward mobility. And yet, there's an ever-growing community of people around the globe that are becoming Bitcoin maximalists, which, according to Investopedia, are those that believe that Bitcoin, which is the world's most popular cryptocurrency, is the only digital asset that will be needed in the future. They believe that all other digital currencies are inferior to Bitcoin. When I think of a Bitcoin maximalist, I think of Michael Saylor, Max Kaiser, Cyphidian Amos, and now I'll add Gclef05 to the list. Gclef05 is this episode's guest Twitter handle, and I'll call him Gclef for short. I've long been looking for a Bitcoin maximalist to join the podcast, and well, today's the day, and Gclef is here to, as he puts it, orange pill all of my subscribers. The orange pill being the third option, not shown to Neo by Morpheus in the Matrix, which leads to another world of possibilities, a Bitcoin world. I'm Jared Carpenter, and this is more than blockchain. Gclef, welcome to More Than Blockchain. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for having me, Jarrett. Appreciate it. Doing good. What a day. Have you looked at the market? Yeah, blood all around. You can get Satoshis for really cheap, over 3,000 Satoshis per dollar at the moment. So that's <laughs> what I'm looking at. Everything's at a discount. I am excited to have you here <laughs> because... You are one of the people that realizes that the market being down isn't a bad thing. Mm -hmm. It is a crazy good opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I have been tweeting about this and I've seen your Twitter also recently. We've been kind of sharing the same sentiment. And people who are long Bitcoin mm -hmm. and who are just going to hold this thing and pass it on to their kids. Mm -hmm. And like you said to me off mic before we started recording, never selling, just using that to leverage to mm -hmm. get fiat currency. Correct. That's where we are. And I'm happy to have you here because you're our first Bitcoin maximalist. I'm happy to be here. And I didn't start off that way as I tweeted the other day. I think everyone tries to get rich quicker than Bitcoin will get you rich. And, but the uncertainties involved with all these other projects are just not worth like, the risk that you put onto your, if you want to call it investment. I, I don't even like to call Bitcoin an investment because when you fully understand it, you realize it's just a savings technology. And we're not used to being able to save the fruits of our labor and have it appreciate over time. It it's, doesn't require anyone to upkeep it. It doesn't require any new products. It doesn't require any new marketing. It just is almost like a digital commodity that just lives autonom autonomously on the internet. So um, it's less than $1 trillion market cap right now, and it's going after $900 trillion. I am just going to look. It's at $600 billion right now, right? which is a far cry from, I think it was like one, two or one, three. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's come down, down significantly. 50%. Bitcoin maximalist now, you weren't always. Correct. Was there a day, a week, a moment, a tweet, a Twitter space? Did someone I mean, call you yeah. out? What was the moment where you were like? I'd probably say Hoddle Magoo. He's, uh, that's his Twitter um, handle. And in a, in a space with uh, BT, uh, what is it, the Bitcoin Station, which is a great space to join. I started getting involved with them really early, and I so 
in the beginning, there was a lot more people that were a little bit more um, forgiving when you came in and started talking about Ethereum. And they would kind of like give you softballs as to why maybe you should change your opinion about it. And then it just, as they extrapolated about the implications of Bitcoin more and more, I came to realize like, what am I doing? Like adding this risk to my portfolio when the implications of having the first hard money since gold has stopped being manipulated, like is it's going to change the world. So that's the only revolution that's actually happening right now, in my opinion. Everything else is just kind of like a, a side project using like buzzwords, trying to rebrand something that could have existed before Bitcoin was invented. So like NFTs, like you could have run an NFT network on uh, Apple, on the App Store, you know, and there are some NFT networks like VV that run on the App Store, um, but that's a centralized server. And so people really weren't, they don't see that as actual like a commodity or an actual piece of property because you can't take it out of the store. So I, in my opinion, I think that a bunch of venture capitalists got together and said, how do we, how do we rebrand this? How do we gain the trust of citizens again? How do we make them believe that like, we're not involved in this? This is nothing to do with us. This is a new innovation. It's a new free market technology. This being NFTs. This being NFTs. Yeah. And I, I was very big into NFTs before I became Bitcoin maximalist. And um, I love the idea of decentralized art that you could apply royalties to. But the, the main thing is it is not decentralized. It is not decentralized because their nodes require so much um, processing power, so much money to run that you can't have thousands of people run them in their basements across the entire world in all countries. Like in El Salvador, you're not going to have someone running a Ethereum node. They can mine Ethereum, which helps with validating the transactions, but they're not going to be able to like participate in the consensus mechanism. A good example is with like uh, the Russian war and how MetaMask started uh, shutting off certain people's wallets. That is not possible on Bitcoin. You can't do that because the, the reason why that was possible is because MetaMask has, is a central entity where politicians could come and point their finger at them and say, shut that down or there are implications for your owners. And that is where Bitcoin succeeds. There is no central entity. There's so many varieties of wallets. And because there's no central entity, there's no way there's to no censor way to attack. it. There's no way to censor it either, to right. block it. I want to go back before we come back to, to NFTs and Web3, mm -hmm. and I want to get your take on how Bitcoin plays a role in that. Mm -hmm. But one of the things you started off saying, I think is something that's very fundamental in understanding Bitcoin that is really hard for us to understand. Because we know inherently, if we have cash, US dollars, and we put them in the bank, we save them. Mm -hmm we're going to lose purchasing power. Mm -hmm. We're all getting lessons in what inflation is every single day. If you didn't know what it is, now you do. And you were nice enough to give me a copy of the Fiat Standard, which yep. I will now read. As, an, as I think it's great. I thought it was going to be, like I said, an extension of the Bitcoin Standard, but it's a totally different book. It's a totally different yeah, book. Yeah, it's not just like rehashing the Bitcoin Standard. It just goes into how Fiat, the implications of funny money. Chuck E. Cheese t tickets, as I call them. Okay. So, but it's exactly that because what you're saying is, and this is something I've not thought about honestly until you said it, but it makes the most sense. When you acquire Bitcoin, I don't want to say buy because it seems like it, 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 dumbs, it waters down Bitcoin. Like you buy a lollipop, right? Right, so right. When you acquire Bitcoin, it's not an investment. It's a saving mechanism in an asset though that will appreciate because it's hard. It's a hard asset. It's a mutable code that has no humans that can basically F with it. 
So you can't have a bunch of people lobby or collude together to have a uh, marketing campaign in order to overthrow it. Well, they are trying to do that right now with BIP 119, but people catch up, on, catch on to it really quickly. So it's really hard to convince everybody who's running their own independent node to do everything at the same time. And if you change the game of Bitcoin, it's no longer Bitcoin, right? If you change the rules of chess, is it chess anymore? If you change the block size of Bitcoin, you didn't change Bitcoin. You just created a different version of it. The original one still exists for whoever wants to run it. And thinking about changes to Bitcoin, mm -hmm. you're saying, well, you know, well, one of the things we've already talked about is it's not centralized. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it can't be censored. What are the existential threats to Bitcoin for you as a Bitcoin maximalist and within the community? Does quantum computing keep you up at night? What uh, keeps you up at night? Sure, if anything? yeah. I, I don't like to until I, I don't like to talk about the dark side of Bitcoin or the potential threats of Bitcoin until usually I convince someone that like it is the best thing. It's a okay. revolutionary technology. You're right. Let's start there. Let's start. So let's, let's backtrack. The revel the reason why Bitcoin is a re is an innovation or uh, discovery more than any of these other projects, such as NFTs or um, Ethereum. Ethereum, yeah, or Solana or Cardano. I really liked Cardano. I know a lot about Cardano or like any, any proof of stake is because someone figured out how to tie digital units to physical energy. And when you tie physical energy onto something digital, you've now made it finite or you've, you've basically made it valuable because you, it's not copy, paste, copy, paste, copy, paste anymore. Now it's like, okay, I know this thing took time or took energy, whether it's like electrons or it's, it's really time that gives value, right? It's the, the time that the block takes. It's not necessarily like the electrons. It's the 10 minutes and then it's the subsidy that's given out and it'll always be 10 minutes. But in order to make it 10 minutes, they had to tie it into energy and then, and so that, or tie it into computing power. And so if the computers advance, become more advanced, and then they can do a block in five minutes, difficulty mechanism, the dif difficulty adjustment will basically double, uh, create it twice as difficult to complete a block and now you're back up to 10 minutes. Suddenly, let's say that the block is gonna take 15 minutes. The difficulty adjustment will make it easier to hash a block and then you're back down to 10 minutes. So it's really more about like connecting the, these tokens to time and, and, and effort. The effort that it takes to create the tokens is what gives them value. So people say Bitcoin's not backed by anything, but it actually is backed by energy and time. And that's what gives it value. And that's the discovery, in my opinion, more than an innovation, because it's inevitable that someone that humans will figure this out. And this is just it's, it, in the past, people tried to figure it out. It was like 40 years they're working on uh, digital scarcity. But this is someone it clicked for Satoshi that, you know, oh, Satoshi actually understood what gave gold value. And then he says, well, I can make gold digital and actually make it more finite than gold because. Or, you know, I heard that if you like uh, mine all the gold in the bottom of the ocean, everyone could have eight pounds of it. But, you know, that's not the case with Bitcoin. There's 21 million units in the entire universe. And if you go to Mars, there's still only 21 million Bitcoin. So it's the first actual scarce monetary asset that's ever come into existence. And that's the revolution. So the NFT markets are rebranding like big tech ideas. And they're rebranding like Napster, as you said, like for music or uh, royalties for art. 
And it's great. And it definitely needs to be rebranded. And I really think that there will be a lot of innovation in that space. And a lot of people can make money in that space. But it's not as necessary as a free market hard money so that we can stop getting our currency devalued and we can actually save the fruits of our labor again. That once again, going back to the first thing is that I, th- I still think that's a, that's a fundamental piece in understanding Bitcoin because when you earn money doing whatever job, you're selling a good or a service, so either your service as an employee or you're selling a good, a product as an entrepreneur, or your, your, your product can also be a service, product as a service, you're going to get fiat currency most likely in the world we live in. In the future, maybe that's not the case. Right. You get that money and then you're like, okay, do I invest it? Do I save it? If right. You save and why it, do you feel that way? Exactly. Mm-hmm. And you feel that way right there when someone's like, well, man, you know, you got to invest your cash because otherwise it's losing. That right there, we've all, if you're listening to this podcast and you've thought, well, you know, I should probably invest money because that's what smart people do or that's how you become wealthy mm-hmm. or whatever you want. That right there is at the crux of the fiat standard, mm-hmm. which the Bitcoin standard mm-hmm. hopes to solve. It brings us back to normal because throughout history, our great, great grandparents, they could have saved the, all the gold that they accumulated throughout their lifetime and they would have seen their purchasing power appreciate because technology would have improved and brought the cost of goods way down. So that same gold that they saved would actually buy you more goods in the future. But when you have money that devalues, prices go up over time, even though technology is increasing. Technology, like for instance, look at like uh, bread. Do you think it, it was easier to make a loaf of bread 100 years ago or today? It's much easier today. So why is the cost of bread so much more? Not only has the currency been devalued, but it's been devalued to the point that we see no benefits of technology. We don't see any benefits of, uh, you know, being able to lower the cost of things. So I love the bread example, because I think when you're trying to explain on my previous podcast, the guest was talking about the startup he's he's founded and he used a vending machine as the real world physical example for us to understand. And you're spot on bread to make a hundred years ago was probably more difficult and labor intensive than it is today. Mm-hmm. Yet it costs so much more, which then talks to it. Does that speak to the relationship between labor and time invested into a product that is similar to like what Bitcoin does? And, and I guess shifting that somebody comes to you and says, okay, I heard what you said about Bitcoin it takes a certain amount of energy from the real world mm-hmm. to put into to create digital scarcity or mm-hmm. scarcity. Mm-hmm. They say same thing with gold. Now you've given the example that if we found all the gold in the world, mm-hmm. everyone would have eight pounds. Right. Gold is fairly, you know, we have mines and they, I think Raul Paul says it appreciates it about, it doesn't appreciate the, the uh, market, the amount of the supply, excuse me, inflates at around 2% annually, Correct. which yeah. is something that's kind of, we can kind of plan out into the future. Yeah. Now we can plan out Bitcoin. What do you, what does the Bitcoin maximalist say to the person that's like, I want, I, I'd rather have a million dollars in gold today mm-hmm. versus a million dollars in Bitcoin. I would say that the gold's tangibility is actually a weakness because it, it inhibits your ability to move. And as we move towards more of a, more of a digital society with remote working and the ability to like, you know, do whatever you want to do, wherever you are in the world, you're not going to want to haul your million dollars of gold around with you and hope that no one notices it in your backpack or something and takes it from you. And, that, and that's a bearer asset. And equivalent to that would be like if you had your private keys written down on a piece of paper, like that would be as silly as walking around with a backpack full of a million dollars worth of gold. 
So I would prefer Bitcoin over gold because gold can be manipulated in the paper market where they sell 100 ounces per actual physical ounce and nobody takes delivery and nobody bats an eye about it. And it's all to keep the illusion that the fiat money has value uh, for as long as possible. Because prior to that, we were, we were tied to gold, obviously. So everybody's paying attention to gold. Meanwhile, Bitcoin's going parabolic because it's not manipulated. It's fully transparent. So if you want to see, uh, you, can't, you can't rehypothecate bit, Bitcoin. You can't resell the same Bitcoin 10 times on the blockchain. Like the UTXO can't be copy pasted. So um, I don't know if you're aware that UTXO is like the, the actual term of the units of Bitcoin that are being sent. It's unspent transaction output. So that's, that's what's actually being moved around. And you can't, you can't say, oh, this UTXO counts five times which is what they do with gold. And so you can't dilute the 21, I shouldn't say, yeah, you can't dilute the 21 million. You can subdivide it, but you can't create more than 21 million coins. Whereas with gold, you could have 100 million ounces of gold and then say, you know what, on paper, I got a billion ounces. And that affects the supply and demand curve, which represses the price of gold. So that's why I prefer, I'm, I was very much into gold before Bitcoin. And the reason why I like Bitcoin is because I understood gold and Bitcoin has all of the scarcity aspects of gold, except it has none of the uh, manipulation by the legacy system. And the legacy system scratching their heads right now trying to figure out how to manipulate Bitcoin. But I think that they might have waited a little bit too long for it. I don't know. <laughs> the gold. So I prefer Bitcoin over gold for mobility and uh, transparency. Mobility and transparency. The mobility one for me is huge because what I think Bitcoin offers to people anywhere in the world. You have the subsistence farmer who is farming their crops in any part of the world. It honestly could even be in the United States. They're in the Midwest. They maybe can't access gold to hold, but they can access Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And that to me is super powerful. It's incredible. One of the things I recently saw, I think it was a tweet, and it's just such a simple idea, but I think the simple ideas are the ones that change the world, Bitcoin being one of them, mm -hmm. is that your home, if you're in the United States and you're a homeowner, your home isn't worth more. Your dollar is worth less. For all prices. For all prices. Yes. And that is a really tough thing for a lot of people to wrap their brains around. You know, mm -hmm. it's like, oh, I bought my house at 300000 Now it's worth 500000 mm -hmm. Well, your house still provides the same utility to you as the person living inside mm -hmm. of the hermit inside the shell mm -hmm. at three to the 300 to 500000 But now it's worth more of these paper dollars, or as you call them, funny money. Yeah. Moving forward... And I think you've just done this. You've just sold some real estate. Mm -hmm. And was that to get liquidity to buy in more Bitcoin? Yeah. I mean, if you look at historical prices of real estate, usually it's like the median house. It's like four times the median household income, I believe, is the average price of a home in the United States, which that was, I believe, over the past three decades prior to this, like owning a home in the 1800s is like, yeah, obviously you own a home. Like everybody owned a home, you know, unless unless you didn't have your own right. You know, obviously there was different rights issues back then. But for those who were allowed to own homes, it was easily accessible. But, you know, you come over to nowadays where the money is being de devalued and people are all scrambling to figure out where to, quote unquote, invest it. And they start applying monetary premiums into houses because houses are finite and houses require proof of work and houses basically uh, can't be printed to, you know, infinity like the U.S. dollar. So as you say, the U.S. dollar gets devalued, the, the rich money, the smart money, like it, rich dad, poor dad, Robert Kiyosaki, who talks about this all the time, 
You want to accumulate assets that can't be devalued. And that's what the rich do. And that's why these assets have monetary premiums, which is not, not typical. Like in the 1800s, you would not have a monetary premium on a home. Can you break down the monetary premium? Sure. Yeah, if you're going to go buy a house today in Massachusetts, what's the monetary premium? I, that I don't know. It's, it's kind of like, um, it's like a concept, but like, you know, it exists because people will buy more than one home in order to store their value. When like people will buy more, not because they enjoy the homes, but because they're looking for a place to store their value. So just the fact that people are storing their value in homes means homes carry monetary premiums. Mon the idea of a monetary premium is basically like, I will pay more for that item because I believe that item will increase in purchasing power in the future, or that item will um, maintain my purchasing power if I purchase it today. So flash forward to where we are now from the 1800s to now, we're just buying a home. The monetary premium, that is why people are buying homes at 50 to 100,000 over. over in cash. Yes. Because they're like, you know what? This is going to be a good investment. Now we're back to the idea of an investment versus a saving mechanism. This is going to be a good investment. Therefore, I'm okay. You know what, honey? We're going to go over our budget by 30,000 because this will be good in 10 years. Right. Okay. But Bitcoin doesn't have that. No. So with Bitcoin, you can go back to the way you used to think when you were five years old where you thought if I put 25 cents in my piggy bank, then in the future, I'll be able to buy something. You know, you can't do that with, with fiat money, right? Because by the time you fill up your piggy bank, it's going to get you the same, like a candy bar probably, you know? If you put 25, uh, let's say 25,000 Satoshis in your piggy bank every day, like instead of using, you know, cents as the unit, use Satoshis, you're going to be able to actually save because as they devalue, it's, what do they say? It's infinity divided by 21 million. As they devalue everything else in the world and as everyone's searching for the hardest money in order to save their purchasing power and as people wake up and realize real estate isn't the hardest money anymore, uh, gold isn't the hardest money anymore, the hardest money is this autonomous network that's basically on the internet that is backed by physical energy that ExxonMobil is using now and is illegal tender in two, in two countries. Like you could say to somebody, oh, I, I hold El, Sal El Salvadorian uh, ten uh, legal tender. And they wouldn't even know it's Bitcoin. They'd be like, oh, he's into, you know, international currencies. <laughs> yeah, he's into, uh, what's that, uh, the exchange, come on, what's the, FT FTX, FTX, yeah. FTX, or something like that. Yeah. You know, he's into foreign exchanges, you know, flipping coins. Talking about Bitcoin as money, that, this is where I'm really excited to have you kind of break this down for me. Because as it is right now, there's nothing, I had this conversation with my father recently, there's nothing that's going to make me part with my Bitcoin. Right. I would sell my NFTs. I right. would sell other cryptocurrencies. Mm -hmm. I turn my US dollars into these things all the time. Mm -hmm. so, so in the world we live in now, like I've told you I want to go down to El Salvador to kind of check it out, but I wouldn't use my Bitcoin there because it's still tied to my US account mm -hmm. where anytime I sell or move it to a different wallet, it's a taxable event. Yeah. However, if I were El Salvadorian and I were living down there, I could use it day to day. Mm -hmm. But because probably still wouldn't. But probably still wouldn't because mm -hmm. I know long term better to just have these and hold them, have these and hold them. Is Bitcoin ever going to be the money that maybe some people think it is? I'm not sure, but that's a that's an interesting question. That is the for me that is the question because people ask me all so, the time, when am I gonna? You know, here's here, here's the thing, and I want you to break this down. I meet you and I say, oh, what are you into? And you're like, yo, I'm into Bitcoin. And I'm like, that is no value, man. You know why? Because let's go to the movies. Can I use my Bitcoin to go to the movies? Can I use my Bitcoin to get gas? Can I pay my mortgage with Bitcoin? Mm -hmm. And the answer is right now to all of those 
yes and no mm-hmm. because you could have you a have credit card. Yeah, yeah, you could you could convert it and some credit cards like you can use a credit card that will draw from your anyways. The but the, the simple answer is no. Mm-hmm. But then why would it still have value and or also please talk about the world mm-hmm. when the world runs on Bitcoin? How does that so work? First, all all monies in history have started out as collectibles. Uh, whether it was seashells or glass beads or gold jewelry, it always started out as collectibles. And then eventually, sometimes people realize, wow, these are collect- like people are, are starting to like really, you know, like TY babies are appreciating these collectibles or whatever. And then it turns into a store of value. And that's really where we are with uh, Bitcoin right now. It's store of value because it's in the middle of its S-curve adoption. So the opportunity cost to sell your Bitcoin right now is, is ridiculous. Like, why would you sell something that's in the middle of a monetary adoption? Like, we, we, it's less, as you said, it's $600 billion. It's chasing $900 trillion. The reason we don't sell it is because of the, it's called opportunity cost. If you really wanted to support the Bitcoin network in El Salvador, you could buy $100 worth of Bitcoin and spend it the same day, and your tax implications would be washed. Because, you know, it'd be first in, first out. But what it changes from here is it turns into um, medium of exchange. So that's where people start saying, I don't even want U.S. dollars. Like, this thing's 800 U.S. dollars, but, like, you got to pay me in, in Bitcoin. That's medium of exchange now where people really don't want anything else except Bitcoin. And then it turns into unit of account. Where like you'd go to the grocery store and you'd see, like, turkey is a thousand Satoshis per pound. That's unit of account. Do I think we're going to get there? I don't know because it de- with Bitcoin and the, the finite technology, or sorry, the finite supply, it will always appreciate. And as technology increases, it will all- and, and lowers the cost of things throughout time, Bitcoin will always buy you more and more and more and more for your money. So it's going to be difficult to price things in Bitcoin in the future when every, well, I mean, I guess the US dollar, everything goes up. But with Bitcoin, everything would go down on a yearly basis as it became more valuable, as it consumed more of the economy. I have a theory, and some other people do, like Lynn Alden, of the dollar hybrid hypothesis. So, And it makes a lot of sense to me because it, the entire fractional reserve banking system would not work on Bitcoin because of the, the fact that it increases of purchasing power and the future bitcoins in the future to obtain would be much harder so like say you took out a loan for one bitcoin that's 10 years long and it's actually denominated in bitcoin by the end of the 10 like you're not going to be able to pay that loan back you'd have to default on it so you need a currency that devalues in order to kind of guarantee that people don't default on the credit system so our current money is based on debt and bitcoin is based on assets bitcoin comes in like bitcoin puts in the value first and then uh the us dollar says pay me back this first you know what i mean like bitcoin puts the energy and time into creating the asset whereas the us dollar says promise me you'll pay me back this iou there's no like time there's no proof of work in the us dollar it's just ious and that's what the top of the federal reserve note says it's a note and note is an instrument of debt it, that's all in financial terms. So it says Federal Reserve note. It's not a U.S. dollar. The United States does not own the money. The Federal Reserve owns the money, and we're obligated to pay every single dollar back to the Federal Reserve with interest. So they need to deflate. They need to devalue their money because that's mathematically impossible. You can't pay back if 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 I lend you a dollar and there's only a dollar in existence, and I say you got to pay me a dollar ten back. 
the only way to pay me back the interest is to borrow more money. So it's a Ponzi scheme. Thinking of the Federal Reserve as a Ponzi scheme is something that Siphonian also speaks about, and I've heard him on podcasts speak about. And when you start to think of it that way, you realize you don't want to hold what everyone's using to exchange. Mm -hmm. And so in, in the Lynn Alden hybrid, and I've heard her talk about this too, and mm -hmm. I think it makes the most sense where you're basically going to have Bitcoin be the thing that will back almost everything. Mm -hmm. And then everything ties to that, meaning probably digital dollars, stable coins. Mm -hmm. Is that, do you think that that's probably how it's going to play out? I think that's going to, how it's going to play out. Yeah. And I think it's going to be a race to who can accumulate the most Bitcoin the most, and I think that normal citizens are going to get priced out sooner than they realize. And it's going to be a, a race amongst institutions to accumulate as much of this reserve asset as possible. That to me makes sense because I am fascinated in, and have a master's in international affairs. But the more you get into international affairs, some people are like, oh, I don't know, that's not interesting, man. But it's like you watch Game of Thrones, right? That's international affairs. It's just fictitious. Mm -hmm. But in the international affairs world that we live in, there's the Lannisters and I'm blanking on the names, uh, you know, the people from the North, whatever. There's all, there's all these different factions. And then there's corporations mm -hmm. and institutions. Mm -hmm. And that also kind of existed in Game of Thrones. I'm going to use that as a way to try to explain this because you had the Golden Army, which the Lannisters hired at the end to try to like fight. And so there, there were institutions. Kinetic power projection. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> it, but, so, so, so there were like, private entities that played a part in that. But if you think of that, that to me would make sense of where corporatocracy is moving, where institutions will have all the power and the mm -hmm. governments will then be 100%. almost subservient to them mm -hmm. because maybe the Federal Reserve, they can print as much money as they want, but Bitcoin supersedes all of that. Mm -hmm. The institutions will have most of it. Mm -hmm. And then the countries will have, you know, you know then, then, then there will be the country level. Mm -hmm. What is something long-term... When you think about, and now I actually want to talk about price. And I know when we talk about crypto, I think there are much more exciting conversations to talk about. But I just put out a podcast. I said, you know, I think Bitcoin gets to a million dollars by 2032. Mm -hmm. Is that conservative? I think that's very conservative. Yeah. Where do you think Bitcoin hits seven figures? So if uh, you look at the hype, it's been through four hype cycles so far, and it usually six X's from the bottom. I like the hype cycle. I, yeah. I've always just called it, you know, the having or the No, it's like an actual... Uh, it's uh, VJ talks about it in the bullish case for Bitcoin. I think it's Gerber hype cycles. I apologize. I don't have the exact term down, but it, it, it occurs with every new adoption of every new technology, whether it's like uh, telephones, automobiles, the internet, people get really enthusiastic. Plastics is a good example. People get really enthusiastic about the technology. They go in and they say, it's a no brainer. You can, nobody can lose money on this. It's going up forever until you get the people that don't fully understand it and they're FOMOing in. And then those people basically buy at the top, the, the hype cycle pops, it goes down and those FOMO people never really understood the technology, don't have the conviction that the person that you know, recommended they go into it and they capitulate out. And then you end up with a small percentage of new acolytes, if you want to call them that, you know, new uh, hodlers. If yeah, you will. <laughs> new hodlers. Yeah. And so each hype cycle, you're generating more. And that's the base. You're generating a, more and more people that understand Bitcoin. So I, we both got into this in 2017. And it took me like about four years to understand that I'm getting distracted by the shiny things here. And I believe that there's like a whole crypto sector that is an innovation. And in my opinion, now there, there isn't. It's just Bitcoin. And it's Anything that comes out of the quote unquote crypto sector that wants to be innovative is going to need to be 
written on Bitcoin or, or a, a version of Bitcoin, a certain layer of Bitcoin to expose themselves to that decentralized node network. That's what you need in order to be censorship resistant, in order to be not, don't F with me proof. You know what I mean? You need to be decentralized to the point that you just need like one teenager running this in their basement and the whole thing would still work, you know? So in, in many ways, and I'm just trying to like now put it in NFT terms, Bitcoin is an NFT. There's just Bitcoin 21 is the million OG NFT. Yeah, it's the OG NFT. Yeah. And there's only 21 million. Yeah, I've said and that. And you can fractionally own them. Yeah. Yeah, it's the OG NFT. We should put an, an ape on the coin or something like that. <laughs> It'd be crazy to have that thing called ApeCoin, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> oh my God. Where do you, as a guy who is on Twitter, who, who are your, I, you know, you, you've just given me this amazing gift, uh, Sifi D and Amos's book, The Fiat yep. Standard. Other than Sifi D and you've also talked about the Bitcoin station. Where can people who listen to this, who maybe aren't Bitcoin maximalists, are just getting into crypto. I think Swan Bitcoin probably has like the best, like, I don't know what you would call it, a class or uh Yeah, like an introductory like course. Yeah, yeah, course. Yeah. Swan Bitcoin probably has the best one. And they're very much Bitcoin maximalists. And that's what you use to to DCA in. Is that accurate? I use Swan, yeah. Cash App is also great. You definitely don't want to use anything that doesn't allow you to transfer your Bitcoin off the exchange. So I believe Robinhood, you can't transfer your. Key. I think Robinhood was putting in everyone, so everyone got a digital wallet. But I remember so Robinhood could time, rehypothecate. Yeah, yeah, that's the problem. Yeah, exactly. So, Cash App, you like Cash App? I do like Cash App. Cash App is Bitcoin exclusive. Uh, you can send to on the Lightning Network with Cash App now. Um, you can send to pretty much any type of Bitcoin wallet. And their fees are similar to Swan. I think Swan might be a little bit cheaper, but Cash App is so user friendly. And the, the Cash App, I, I remember I got into Cash App and Venmo at the same time. And Venmo seemed like a Facebook 2.0. Yeah. But Cash App seemed like Web 1 interface. Yeah. It was like Duck Hunter. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. You know where you log in? It, it was, was like a little the, sketchy at first. It was like, yeah, it was like the Mario where you're like, <laughs> this is almost, the UX is too easy. Like it, yeah. it, it, it didn't build the trust that like, you know, we're also used to using it wasn't billion dollar enough. apps. Yeah, right? yeah. Right? When people come out with apps and they're like, oh, I'm trying to do this. And, you know, you look at them and. People judge them. I'm like, yeah, well, that's because our entire lives are using apps like Uber, Facebook, Venmo or something. Billion dollar right. investments. Not open source. Like, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. just like this, you know, the more like the, the simpler, the better. And so, but I, I want to get, I said 2032 Bitcoin would be a million dollars. And I do think that was conservative because I think 2028, mm -hmm. when we hit that hype cycle, we could maybe, it depends where institutions are, depends what treasuries are adopting this. But if you had to put a number, if you had to bet, okay, and you can bet fiat because you don't care so, about it, but you know, if you bet a hundred dollars, if I, I would be surprised if Bitcoin was not 10, yeah, I would be surprised if Bitcoin was not more than 10 trillion dollars by like the year 20, between 2025 and 20, the market cap, the market cap, yeah. So if you extrapolate that out, it's like 300, like 600, yeah, I probably, 400, I'd probably bet, I'd probably bet between. 1.5 million and 2.5 million by the year 2030. Okay. I think that just based on adoption and then you're going to have countries, you're going to have the game theory start to play out and people realizing the implications of this. It's going to start snowballing. And I'm not saying, oh, the, every, all of the currencies will be gone. Like, I think it could be at like $1 million of Bitcoin and like society could be fairly unfazed. And it would just be like the bankers and institutions just slowly moving what their reserves are. You, you've totally served it up because that was one of the things I wanted to ask you. 
at what point does the person right now walking the earth, and there are many, there are billions of these people, and I know many friends that this is just not even on their radar. They've heard the word Bitcoin, but they have mm-hmm. no idea. Gun to their head. Mm-hmm. They couldn't tell you anything else about it. When are those people going to have when to they, play? They don't realize their money's broken yet. They think that greedy people are increasing prices and that it's a bunch of greedy, in my opinion, uh, they think that uh, it's a bunch of greedy people just trying to take advantage. I don't think they realize the money's broken. Like in Argentina, like they know the money's broken. In Lebanon, they know the money's broken. Um, you know, a bunch of other countries that don't Venezuela, have the privilege. Yeah, Zimbabwe. they are aware of what can happen when you don't have a limit on, you know, how these political programs are being funded, which is, and with the interest rate increases, the national debt, the interest on the national debt will be almost as much as the national budget soon, which is insane. So you're paying more on your credit card bill in interest than you, than you are borrowing on it. It's just crazy to me. So when people start asking those questions, the same reason I started asking, you know, why that's what got me into gold kind of, how do I preserve the value? How do I preserve my value when they can't afford a house? That's when they start asking questions, I think, unfortunately. But, but it's, it's going to take to that point. Yeah, I think it will. But I feel like we're already there. I feel like we're already in a situation where there's a Netflix movie and I'm blanking on it, unfortunately, and I will put it in the exit note. And it's about how essentially inequality now is the exact same inequality that we had before the Renaissance mm-hmm. in France. Because you had all these, then it was landowners. Now it's just like you have 10 people in a room that own half the wealth on the planet or whatever mm-hmm. it is. And you get to a point where there's a breaking point mm-hmm. and people are like, okay. It's called the Gini coefficient. It's like a, it's a measurement of the distribution of wealth within the population. In the United States, it's equivalent to like a lot of third world, I think it's 37 or something like that. And uh, so we're like up there with the third world countries. I don't know why it doesn't seem that way, but the rich well, in the United States, I think are vastly th- richer. I think it seems that way, and when I think about Colombia and Guatemala, a place I've spent years, strictly just due to credit, you don't need anything. You have a social security number here. You can go down to Macy's or to any Old Navy. You can go to any store. Everyone has a credit system. Yeah. You can buy it. You can easily sign up for their credit card and save 20%. They'll always ask, hey, you want to save 20% today? Yeah, yeah. And in other countries, I'm a Colombian citizen. I can't even open up a bank account there until I prove to them that I have that that i'm employed really yeah which sets off a whole other host of things and it gives you reason why 65 to 70 percent of colombians work in the informal economy what does that mean they drive for lift they deliver food they run a child care program whatever they do it's not under the tax-based structure and so when i think about the u.s though and you're saying you know people will realize once there's that moment of wow something's really wrong the money's broken yeah yeah but i feel like just will, like you will said. that happen though? I don't know because yeah, they be- want the dollar hybrid theory, so they need people to value the the dollar. I don't think the dollar. And they don't want to lose their power because they don't want to lose their power over the printing press. But they maybe will let this thing coexist with them so that they can also store store their value. Yeah, I don't think the dollar is going to go away. Is is my so is my take, and that's also just having spent enough time abroad that like people will die for the dollar right. literally. And I do think, however, Bitcoin will be play its role in the hybrid theory. But I, I guess I'm just wondering, like, what else does it take? Or maybe we're already there. There's just conflicting opinions as to why the world is the way it is. Like you're saying, a lot of people are like blaming billionaires because their prices are increasing at the supermarket. Mm-hmm. But you're saying, no, it's because our entire money system is broken. Mm-hmm. So, so there's a single mother. 
and you come across her and you guys start talking about mm. whatever you're talking about. You're talking mm. about the weather or the Red Sox. Those are two easy things to talk about in Massachusetts. And Bitcoin comes up mm. and she doesn't have, she maybe can spare $20 a month. Mm. Is that enough? And why? That is to start. What is her alternative? You know, so that's the problem. It, it is the best solution for her. And I can guarantee that over the long term, it will the twenty dollars will increase in purchasing power just through adoption. Um, and then, you know, through the finite amount of Bitcoin, and then you have more people coming in, like the value of it has to go up. If she doesn't, if she saves it in her bank account, I mean, I know I brought it up a couple times, but remind people that like if your grandparents stored all their US dollars under their mattress, what would it buy today? So like, why are you saving? Like it's just because it's eroding at a rate that like you can't really perceive because it's only 7% a year. Like this year is like 15%, whatever it is. It's eroding at a rate that like you can't see because someone's not going under your mattress and taking the dollars. But that's like what's going on. And a lot of times if you say like, if you took every penny, every, every week you worked 40 hours and you put it under your mattress or your father did, what would that get today? And it's like nothing. And it's like the money's broken. Like that's not the case. In the 1700s, that wasn't the case. In the 18, 1600s, 1800s, that wasn't the case. So it's like people need, should wonder why that is. And it's, I, you know, the mainstream media doesn't want anyone to wonder why that is because it's going to take away their cotillion effect of being, you know, having all the power because they're closest to the printing press, which is, I could go into proof of stake and why that is too, but well, yeah, yeah. So I would say save the $20 in there because if you save it in land, you're exposed to new, new laws. If you save it in real estate, you're exposed to overhead costs, like fixing a roof and, you know, new plumbing and Maintenance. stuff. Yeah. You save it in a stock. You're what's, what company has been around for more than a hundred years? Like, what were you going to invest in? Like, you know, the Edison company, like there's nothing that you could have held on to besides real estate for more than a hundred years. And the only reason real estate lasted as long is because it was Im the most immutable thing humans had access to. But now we have access to something that's more immutable and that's Bitcoin because you can't even have countries come in and hit you, you know, and take your land from you. You can memorize your uh, information and the, the value is in that information. That's the innovation. That's, have have you, have you memorized? You, I have not, but you can. It's 24 words. It's 24 words. Yeah. yeah so, so if shit hits the fans, you better believe I'm memorizing that, you know? <laughs> What's the, um, we talked about this the other day, but I think it's really important to repeat because the people listen to my podcast here, they could be newbies to crypto, could be newbies to Bitcoin. They may come in through NFTs, they may come in through DeFi, they may come in through DAOs. They, they come in from a bunch of different places. And you shared something with me the other, the other day, which I'd only recently seen. It's like, you know, the, Twitter ad algorithm also knows that we were going to come across each other and talk about this. How do you store your Bitcoin mm -hmm. so you are like, I've done the yeah, best that so I can do with what I have? I, first of all, I don't recommend anyone stores it in a way that they don't fully comprehend because you can, it's a bearer asset, right? Just like if you lose a $100 bill in a subway grate, that's gone. Like if you accidentally set your Bitcoin wallet up in a way that you don't fully understand it, like you could freeze those UTXOs and not have access to the private keys and it, that's gone. If you set it up in a way that like you pass away in a plane crash and your family, you know, it's so complicated, your family won't be able to access it. That's, that's it, gone. So it's like, there's a lot of different ways to store your Bitcoin. I definitely recommend cold storage. I definitely don't recommend keeping it on an exchange for 
the rehypothecation reason, uh, because if there's a war or some reason you become a person of interest, they'll just freeze your wallet address. You don't actually own it until you own your private keys. So what do I do? I would get a hardware wallet. I prefer air gap wallets. So um, cold card is great. Can you break down, before, before you talk about cold card, and I want you to talk about that, the air gap and non-air gap. Yeah, sure. So air gap wallets never plug into uh, the internet. So it's a standalone device. It never jumps on Wi-Fi. It never goes in the internet. And it typically, it just, it never gets uh, the chip exposed to your computer. So if there's any malware in your computer or something, it never can like uh, secretly transfer onto your hardware wallet and like strip your private keys. That being said, no hardware wallet has ever had its uh, encrypted chip hacked, like including Ledger. But Ledger, I was mentioning to you that Ledger did have their Shopify account hacked and disclosed the addresses of everyone who bought a Ledger, which isn't that great. And then Trezor had a, a phishing scam going a couple weeks ago where people were getting basically emails that looked like they're from Trezor and they're entering their seed phrase, which then their account, you know, someone just got their seed phrase, which is the private keys. So your seed phrase is basically, the private key is like a really long number and it's like all number, it's- It's alphanumeric. Yeah, alphanumeric, thank you. And so they change it to the, the uh, seed phrase is BIP39, I believe, 24 words. It's just easier for humans to remember. But it, it's an encrypted version of your private key. That, so your seed phrase is your private key. And your private key is simply your password to your UTXOs. Your UTXOs live on the Bitcoin network. They're not on your hardware wallet. So just to clarify that, like a lot of people say, oh, I lost my hardware wallet. I had Bitcoins on there. Like, no, you didn't. You had a password that, that gives you access to the Bitcoins that live on the blockchain. Yeah, you, you had a key to your storage locker. Right, exactly. Which is, there's only one key. And, and then the Bitcoins are in the locker. They're not on the key. Yeah, yeah. which is Satoshi's uh, storage. Yeah, yeah. Which sounds like a new podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, that clarifies a lot of things. A lot of newbies will call them uh, wallets. So wallet implies like almost like an MP3 player where you download the file onto your MP3 player and now you know your file's on the MP3. That's not the case with Bitcoin. Your Bitcoin always lives on the Bitcoin cloud, if you want to call it that, or the blockchain. And then you just have access to the passwords to it. And you... I mentioned that I have a ledger and mm -hmm. you're saying the cold card, however. So cold card is Bitcoin maximalism. They don't do any altcoins, uh, which I love. Um, it's air gapped. <laughs> so I think the new one uses NFC, near field communication, and you can talk to your phone with that way. I don't know if I would recommend that over like just having a micro SD card that you transfer over. Um, and then the thing doesn't plug into your computer, it runs on a nine volt battery to power it. And yeah, I love it. You can cross-reference your addresses on your cold card and then on your uh, wallet on the computer to make sure that like, no one hacked your computer and is like giving you a fake wallet address to send it in. It's a little more cumbersome than like a ledger because you can get a ledger that runs on Bluetooth, but you know, you're opening yourself up to more vulnerabilities. Right, because if something were to be compromised on your computer, it's, it's over. I, I actually love that idea and I was telling... I was telling our, our, our mutual connection about that. And he was like, wow, that's, that's crazy. We should do that. So I'm going to get myself and I'm going to get him one as well uh, off your advice. Cause I love that. So the air gap. Now. I, I do multi-sig cold card and uh, uh, I do a two of three multi-sig cold card. And then I run my own node. Um, so any transaction that I do on Bitcoin goes through my node at my house. So if like, otherwise you're using someone else's uh, node. And so if, You'd be like I said, just in the future, this is all just to future proof yourself. If you became a person of interest, like 
uh, you know, Jarrett is uh, talking to Russia or something, yeah. freeze his wallet, and then you go to do a transaction. If you don't have your own node, it might not go through. What does it take? So now for the person who's listening, it's like, okay, gold card, got it. Mm-hmm. Going to follow G. Clef, got it. He's going to shout his Twitter very soon. What does it take to run your own node as far as investment? What does that look like okay. to set up? So that's what's amazing about Bitcoin. It's like, it's not that expensive to run a full node, which is, this is where the decentralization like takes off is you could get a Raspberry Pi with a power um, supply for it uh, and a SSD card. You need a one terabyte SSD card. I'm sorry, not a, a solid state drive. Uh, one terabyte solid state drive. And then the current blockchain size is like 550 gigabytes. So you're good for like 10 more years if you get one terabyte. And then you use, I use Umbral. You don't have to use Umbral. You could just go to Bitcoin.org and download Bitcoin Core. But Umbral has like a whole walkthrough. And Umbral is open source. So you use them to run your node. You basically flash the operating, the Umbral operating system onto the Raspberry Pi, and then attach that to your Wi-Fi or plug it right into your router. It's going to update the Bitcoin blockchain, and then you just keep it plugged in forever. And then you can get a compatible wallet, whether it's Blue Wallet or I, I use Spectre Desktop. I think it's the best for multi-sig, and it's open source too. Um, and then that wallet will link to your node over Tor. So the, no one really knows where this node is located. And that's what also is beautiful about Bitcoin. So how do you stop it? Like you have this like pseudonymous node running on no one knows where. And it's, there's thousands of them. And there's no other blockchain that's doing that. If you want to call it blockchain, there's no other crypto that's doing that. So I lo- it's like $400 probably to start a node. That's what I was going to ask you. I just think that sometimes, sometimes people, this is something and Nick Widmer shared about this, I think in episode eight, could be wrong, but he was talking about the curve of adoption mm-hmm. on anything. And there's mm-hmm. a point where it's like only rich people do it. Mm-hmm. Only these people do it. And I think that sometimes when people think about Bitcoin or investing in it or not investing in it, acquiring it, they think it's cost prohibitive. So to know that it's $400 to set up your own node. Yeah. That seems, doesn't mind. I just, yeah, it doesn't mind. Yeah. I just want to, yeah, it doesn't mind. But it's not a huge barrier to entry because when you said that in my mind, I was like, oh, maybe a thousand dollars, you know, is a lot of money for some people, isn't a lot of money for other people, but maybe over six months, you could get a thousand dollars together. But four hundred dollars seems even more. And then you get to participate in the Bitcoin consensus. If something were to happen that you didn't agree with, like you could uh, choose not to run that version. And so like you really do have a vote. Um, you're not mining basically, but you are the person that validates these, the blocks that the miners create. So I was a little confused about nodes in the beginning because in the white paper, he refers to a full node as a miner. I think in the beginning it was like they're the same, uh, but they've kind of been separated out now. So like miners, I believe, are, are also full nodes, but you can separate the two now. You can mine Bitcoin and not be a node. And Right, so. it's like a... A square and a rectangle. You can be one and not the other. Right, one right. The other. I believe, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We've talked about the price. You're saying 1.2 to 1.5 by 2030? Like, by the, you well, won't even care about US dollars. Yeah, I mean, I... That's I, the thing is like, it, we're all, we're pricing it out and it's like, how many, how many seashells does this iPhone? Like, you don't give a shit. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> one of the main things that Bitcoin Maximus and I love too. And somebody asked, somebody asked Michael Saylor, I believe it was, 
or it was Max. I'm blanking on his last name. Max Kaiser. Max Kaiser. Max Kaiser is crazy. Yeah. It was Max Kaiser. He's he's just something else. If you're yeah. if you're on YouTube, but he's sick of it. He's been he's been a maximalist from the get. go He's been a maximalist for a decade. Yeah, and people, yeah. you know, whatever. I think he turned. I think he coined the term shitcoin, right? I think, I think he did. Yeah, I think yeah, he did. Yeah. He he should get royalties on that in Bitcoin. <laughs> but he said one day somebody said, "Well, you know, Max, what's a Bitcoin worth?" He said. A Bitcoin's worth one Bitcoin. Yeah, a hundred, a hundred million satoshis. Yeah, and, that, and that's like next question. Yeah, and that to me has always stayed with me. Like, Holy like I crap. make more money every day because every day I buy more Bitcoin. <laughs> like Exa- that's exactly. I don't even look at and like. Okay, yeah, it, it, the purchasing power over the short term it fluctuates a lot, but if you go out any four year period, you're increasing purchasing power, and the numbers haven't changed, and the adoptions is just becoming more uh, certain. You know, you have like uh, Shopify partnering with Strike I know. to run all. They're just going to take out the merchant service companies. If it's you, amazing. If you, uh, is there a price? I've said I think it will go down to 22 to 25. I think it could capitulate down to even like, I would, I, I hate to say it, but I think you could see like a capitulation between 10 and 15,000. So for maybe a couple days. Yeah, even just for that brief 48 hour period. Why does that happen? Knowing what Liquidity. we know now about Bitcoin, knowing so, what you've said about yeah. Bitcoin, it is the... It's the unit of account problem. Everything's... The unit of account is still US dollars. The banks aren't asking for things to be denominated in Bitcoin, so everyone has to bail on whatever, you know, whatever savings they have or investment they have to figure out where to come up with liquidity, which needs to be US dollars. And so it creates a liquidity crisis across stocks, everything. Yeah. Uh, anything liquid yeah, and Bitcoin's pretty liquid but like I said it's kind of the end of that hype cycle where you're going to create the hodlers at this point point. and these are I, I'm getting like this is the first time where Bitcoin's starting to go down I'm like excited now I'm genuinely excited I have my conviction is like 100% so like I just sold a house like you know to buy more Bitcoin and I'm like really excited that it's plummeting right now I've been <laughs> I, I love that because I've been actually working I think I told you I'm working on an episode about why, if you have a certain amount of money, you know, you have the $80,000 for a down payment, why you may want to continue to rent, but put that into Bitcoin. If mm-hmm. your end goal is to be more wealthy in 10 to five, 15 years, which is what most people say when they go to buy their first home. Oh, we want to create wealth. You know, you're standing with that, with, with, the, with that young couple and they're about to buy their, their first home, but they're also open to this other thing, which is let's keep renting for five years and we'll buy Bitcoin because we're about to enter into a new hype cycle. Mm-hmm. What would you what would you say? To I, them? I would say I would say buy Bitcoin because it's going to be adopted as the future monetary reserve asset of the world. And so anything like literally anything will trend towards zero against it. Anything like when that's just mind blowing. And it's, it's I said I said before we started, I'm like, sometimes I speak in absolutes, but there is nothing that is has a finite, you know, actual immutable scarcity, not even gold. So not even gold. Not yeah, and that's insane. Not even, I don't even know. Doesn't the universe expand? <laughs> not the, even matter itself. The, the universe is expanding <laughs> as we're t- during this podcast. Even the double. universe so, has a inflation built into it. Has an inflation problem. It has a, it's the fiat, the fiat universe. So it, it's you look at the past ten years. Would you have rather bought a house or owned Bitcoin? And I think that you know future result. You know past performance is not indicative of future results. But I think you're going to see. Some serious growth, maybe not as crazy as the past 10 years, but definitely like it's chasing $900 trillion in 2022 terms. It's chasing the real estate market of the world. It's chasing, uh, you know, all the tech markets. So when you compare any of these other projects, which, like I said, some of them may succeed and some of them may be beneficial to humanity. 
but their market shares are what three trillion dollars let's say 10 trillion dollars none of them are trying to change the unit of account of planet earth and mars probably in the future no one else is trying to change how we price every single thing in the world g clef we could talk for hours <laughs> Where can people find you? I'm on Twitter, gclef05. I'm sometimes in spaces. Yeah. And I just highly encourage for people to do more and more research. The more hours you put into Bitcoin, the more conviction you get. That's um, that proof of work. And ask, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and ask questions and, and really get into the technicals of it. Like understand how it operates so that when someone in the future comes with some consensus, uh, you know, some uh, Bitcoin improvement, proposal that's nonsense you'll know right away that it's nonsense and then you can be one of the bitcoiners that keeps the whole thing going so well thank you so much for joining and this episode will be out very shortly awesome sounds good jared thanks for having me thanks for listening to this episode and be sure to follow gclef05 on twitter that's g-c-l-e-f-05 and as a footnote to this episode the Netflix documentary I was trying to think of is entitled Capital in the 21st Century, and I highly recommend it. Also, the hype cycle that GClef05 mentioned is called the Gartner Hype Cycle. That's G-A-R-T-N-E-R. Be sure to follow us on social media at More Than Blockchain and subscribe wherever you're listening to the podcast. Also, I love your feedback on our new website, which can be found at morethanblockchain.xyz. Check it out and DM us on social media so we can continue to improve it. If you found value in this episode, please share the episode link with a friend via a text, DM, or email. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.